open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 16. We're going to take an opportunity uh, this morning to read uh, the whole chapter together. It is uh, 36 verses long, and uh, but it tells a narrative and weaves it together in a way that I think is best suited to read and not summarize, and so we'll be doing that uh, together in whole. But before we get there, we're recognizing that uh, the Israelites have been redeemed out of Egypt with a mighty arm and an outstretched hand. And these Israelites have begun their new life of freedom as subjects of the Lord. Yet there is a wilderness between them and Canaan. And they are but a community of people who are to be formed into a nation. And so we come here to uh, further depths of the wilderness and follow along as I read for us Exodus chapter 16. Then they set out from Elam... And all the congregation of the sons of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai, on the fifteenth day of the second month after their departure from the land of Egypt. The whole congregation of the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. The sons of Israel said to them, Would that we have died by the Lord's hand in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the pots of meat, when we ate bread to the full, for you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I will rain bread from heaven for you. And the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day, that I may test them whether or not they will walk in my instruction. On the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. So Moses and Aaron said to all the sons of Israel, at evening, you will know what the Lord. You will know that the Lord has brought you out of the land of Egypt. And in the morning, you shall see the glory of the Lord, for He hears your grumbling against the Lord. And what are we that you grumble against us? Moses said, "This will happen when the Lord gives you meat to eat in the evening and bread in the full in the morning, for the Lord hears your grumblings, which you grumble against Him. And what are we? Your grumblings are not against us, but against the Lord." Then Moses said to Aaron, Say to all the congregation of the sons of Israel, Come near before the Lord, for he has heard your grumblings. It came about as Aaron spoke to the congregation of Israel of the sons, the congregation of the sons of Israel, that they looked toward the wilderness, and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud, and the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, I have heard the grumblings of the sons of Israel. Speak to them, saying, At twilight you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God. So it came about at evening that the quails came up and covered the camp, and in the morning there was a layer of dew around the camp. When the layer of dew evaporated, behold, on the surface of the wilderness there was a fine flake-like thing, fine as the frost on the ground. When the sons of Israel saw it, they said to one another, What is it? For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, It is the bread which the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded. Gather of it every man as much as he should eat. You shall take an omer apiece, according to the number of persons each of you has in his tent. 
The sons of Israel did so, and some gathered much and some little. And when they measured it with an omer, he who had gathered much had no excess. He who had gathered little had no lack. Every man gathered as much as we should eat, as much as he should eat. Moses said to them, let no man leave any of it until the morning. But they did not listen to Moses, and some left part of it until morning. And it bred worms and became foul, and Moses was angry with them. They gathered it morning, morning by morning, every man as much as he should eat, but when the sun grew hot, it would melt. Now on the sixth day they gathered twice as much bread, two omers for each one, when all the leaders of the congregation came and told Moses. And then he said to them, This is what the Lord meant. Tomorrow is a Sabbath observance, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you will bake, and boil what you will boil, and all that is left over put aside to be kept until morning. But they put it aside, so they put it aside until morning, as Moses had ordered, and it did not become foul, nor was there any worm in it. Moses said, Eat it today, for today is a Sabbath to the Lord. Today you will not find it in the field. Six days you shall gather it, but on the seventh day, the Sabbath, there will be none. It came about on the seventh day that some of the people went out to gather, but they found none. Then the Lord said to Moses, How long do you refuse to keep my commandments and my instructions? See, the Lord has given you the Sabbath. Therefore, he gives you bread for two days on the sixth day. Remain every man in his place. Let no man go out of this place on the seventh day. So the people rested on the seventh day. The house of Israel named it manna. And it was like coriander seed, white, and it tastes like wafers with honey. Then Moses said, this is what the Lord has commanded. Let an omer full of it be kept throughout your generations, that they may see the bread that I fed you in the wilderness when I brought you out of the land of Egypt. Moses said to Aaron, take a jar and put an omer full of manna in it and place it before the Lord to be kept throughout your generations. As the Lord commanded Moses, so Aaron placed it before the testimony to be kept. The sons of Israel ate the manna forty years until they came to an inhabited, an inhabited land. They ate the manna until they came to the border of the land of Canaan. Now an omer is a tenth of an ephah. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Let us go to him for help one more time. O oh Lord, what wonders you have worked there in the wilderness of sin. Yet what greater wonders are worked in the hearts of dead sinners brought to life and given the provision of Christ. O oh Lord, we may see these wonders and give you glory. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, an exodus has surely begun. A march towards the promised land. But skewed memories of a former life linger in God's people. Suffering what can only be described as sinful amnesia, the Israelites assume that God has cruelly brought them out of Egypt only to die. Hunger pains cry louder than a spoken promise to Abraham, causing indignant requests instead of humble appeals. Nevertheless, God is gracious and patient with his people and rains down bread instead of judgment. This bread from heaven would provide for all to be full and none to lack. Every day for 40 years, their hunger would rise and the bread would be there, always waiting 
always whispering, more will be needed tomorrow. You will hunger again. This will not satisfy the soul. Pointing to the day when the true bread from heaven would declare before a crowd only concerned with physical hunger that he is the bread of life. And this bread would satisfy completely, doing away with the whispers of spiritual hunger and replacing it with life abundant. And so here is the point. The Lord was teaching the Israelites that he is not only their liberator, but also their daily provider. That the one who from heaven gives not necessarily what is expected, but always what is really needed. And so as we look at the manna, and we'll make comment also about the quail this morning, we'll look at it under these four headings. The manna and Moses' generation, the manna and future generations, the manna and Christ, and the manna and us looking to see how the Lord will reveal that he's not only a liberator, but a daily provider. And that in his provision, it's not only, not always what we expect, it's oftentimes what we do not expect, but it's always what is really needed. So first we look at Moses, or, and, or the manna in Moses' generation. We see that this manna provided was a supernatural gift. You can read some commentaries of, of more liberal theologians and they come up with this idea that there was some seed of a tree that let, let go of its seed on a daily basis and that's what they gathered and it was when it was covered in the dew it would cake together and, and make these flakes as described in scripture. But what they can't account for is that this tree, if it was so-called tree, would give its seed every day for 40 years, in season, in winter, and in summer, and spring, and in fall. Every day it would provide. And then by some another miraculous act, it provided extra on one day of the week, and none on another day of the week. No, I think it's clear that this manna was outside of natural generation. It was likened unto this coriander seed. It was likened unto something as delicate and I can imagine as tasteful as wafers with honey. But it was outside of natural generations. It came and went with the dew. We also find that this manna for Moses' generation was to be gathered daily. They were not to worry about tomorrow. They were not to hoard it and gather up a year's supply and then eat off of that. No, they were to gather it daily. It's likened uh, unto this idea that if a king would provide his son a year's supply uh, or a year's um, income that was afforded to the prince, the king found out that he would only see his, the prince once a year. But if he provided him a day's wages or a day's worth of provision, he would see the prince daily. Such as the Lord guiding and directing Israel, for they were to come to the Lord every morning. Every morning receive his provision. And to gather only what was needed. And to leave 
what was available, so there was some available for those that needed more. And we find that this uh, supernatural gift would also wither one day and flourish another. We also find that the manna did not cease until they reached Canaan. This provision was a complete provision. It did not cease until they reached Canaan and ate of the fruit of the land. Joshua 5 gives testimony to this. In Joshua 5.12, we read that the manna ceased on the day after they had eaten some of the produce of the land, so that the sons of Israel no longer had manna, but they ate some of the yield of the land of Canaan during that year. What a wonder it must have been. And Joshua doesn't record for us how many Israelites went out to gather that next day, only to find no manna, for they were eating of the fruit of that land promised to them. We also find that the manna for Moses' generation is connected with the glory of the Lord. It's actually the first time we read of the appearing of the glory of the Lord, not only in connection with Israel, but in Scripture. And so we have the glory of the Lord being present and being connected to the giving of this manna. So we have this manna that has a supernatural origin. We have this manna that is to be gathered or attended to daily. And they're in need of it daily. We have a, a manna that will not cease to provide provision until they reach the promised land. We have this manna that is connected to the glory of the Lord. We also find, and I'm so helpful when Scripture does this, is it provides for us the lesson that was intended. It was an object lesson for the Israelites. Yes, there would have been some that would have gathered the manna in only to satisfy their physical hunger. They would have looked not beyond it, beyond that which what it did for them physically. But there would have been some assumingly believing Jews who would have looked to the manna and saw the lesson that was presented to them as further expressed and further revealed in Deuteronomy 8. Moses is now writing and giving the law again to the Israelites in Deuteronomy where they're about to take possession of the promised land. So the law is now fitted a little more for being a nation in the land and less as a nation or a people wandering in the wilderness. And so this second giving of the law, we find they also retelling a short history of the Israelites. And so in Deuteronomy 8, we read, He humbled you and let you be hungry and fed you with manna which you did not know, nor did your fathers know that he might make you understand that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by everything that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord. This, we find, is the object lesson of the manna. The man shall not live by bread alone, but by everything that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord. We also find here, with manna and Moses' generation, we find... To their shame, their failure. That they did not trust the Lord to fulfill his promises. They did not look to the Lord, but they looked to Egypt. They said something 
his blasphemouses, would that we had died by the Lord's hand in the land of Egypt. What died by the Lord's hand in the land of Egypt? The firstborn. That tenth plague. Would that we had succumbed to God's judgment instead of be here and be distressed by hunger. Oh, their failure was great. Their failure didn't end there. It would actually come into some sort of consummated form, as I've been saying, is that eventually they would come to actually despise this provision. In Numbers 11, post-Sinai, we read in verses 4 through 9 that the rabble who were among them had greedy desires. And also the sons of Israel wept again and said, Who will give us meat to eat? We remember the fish which we used to eat free in Egypt. The cucumbers and the melons and the leeks and the onions and the garlic. But now our appetite is gone. There is nothing at all to look at except this manna. Except this thing we do nothing for. We don't have to go out and hunt it. We don't have to go out and process it. It is provision for them. And, it ha- and it's provision of 40 years. And they said, we have nothing to look at except this manna. Oh, that the blessings of the Lord would not grow stale in the hearts of his people. It describes further that the, this manna was used that they would go about and collect it and grind it. They would beat it in, in the mortar. They would boil it in the pot, make cakes with it. And it was, its taste was the taste of cakes baked with oil. This is Numbers 11. When the dew fell on the camp at night, the manna would fall with it. The final thing that we see between the manna and Moses' generation, and this is pressing forward because... This manna would also be a memorial of the Lord's provision. They were to take an omer full. They were to take a day, a, a personal provision full, put it in a jar, and place it with the, in the testimony of the Lord, eventually placing it in the ark of the Lord. And it was to set it apart for a further revealing of the gospel. So we see that that this uh, manna has its uh, first uh, contact with the people of Israel here in the wilderness of sin. And I should say, we should know that sin there is is a transliterated word. It's not it doesn't mean falling short. It just means Sinai adjacent, essentially. So they're here in the wilderness of sin. And they're, and, they're, and they're experiencing this deep hunger. And the Lord provides. And yet, the Lord was intending to reveal more here than they could know. Something that they could hold in mystery, in type and in shadow, but they could not know to its fullest. For that would come later. But the Lord would do so and generate anticipation amongst 
God's people throughout further revelation. And so we see this in the manna and future generations. It becomes a pattern for things to come. And we can see this first through Nehemiah, then the Psalms, and finally we'll see it in Isaiah, the prophet. Nehemiah 9, chapter 15. Nehemiah, we know, is one who uh, is set to rebuild the wall around Jerusalem, the temple having been rebuilt by Ezra. And there is this time of teaching that takes place in Nehemiah 9, and it says, again, when the Israelites are taught, they're taught the history of God's provision, the history of God's redemption, the history of God's faithfulness, in anticipation of his continuing and future faithfulness and provision. So we read in Nehemiah 9.15, You provided bread from heaven. You provided bread from heaven for them for their hunger. You brought forth water from a rock for them for their thirst. And you told them to enter in order to possess the land which you swore to give them. This becomes the retelling of the histories because the Lord is laying down these tracks, these narrative tracks, so that at the arrival of Christ, we will see that he walks in fulfillment of those tracks. Psalm 78, verses 24 and 25, another psalm that retells the history of Israel. He rained down manna upon them to eat and give them food from heaven. So we see here that in the original uh, giving in Revelation of manna, the implication is that it's from heaven. It, it comes down with the dew. The implication is that it's rained down. But it's given this further explication in Psalm 78 that it's rained down manna upon them to eat and give them food from heaven. Man did eat the bread of angels. He sent them food in abundance. There is a certain anticipation there in Psalm 78 that, that this goes beyond just the physical provision of the manna. That it was bread of angels. That it was from heaven. Psalm 105, another psalm that retells the history of Israel. He asked and he brought quail and satisfied them with bread of heaven. Here, the quail is brought up, and we recognize that where the bread is of supernatural origin, it, it, it is of something they can't describe, and so they name it manna, which means what is it? But they don't have to do that with the quail. The quail they know. They know what it is. It is quail. The feathered bird. Now, I'm not positing that the quail came by some migratory pattern in the area. I think the Lord supernaturally brings the quail to them. But the quail is of natural generation, where the bread is of supernatural generation. Turn with me to Isaiah 45. And we'll see that the Lord would set this pattern down so that when he gives to Isaiah a prophecy for a new exodus, we would understand it in light of that anticipation. 
in Isaiah 45 and verse 8, the Lord proclaiming that there is none beside him. In verse 4, he says, For the sake of, my, of Jacob, my servant, and Israel, my chosen one, I have also called you by your name. I have given you a title of honor, though you have not known me. I am the Lord, and there is no other beside me. There is no God. I will gird you, though you have not known me, that men may know from the rising of the setting sun that there is no one beside me. I am the Lord. There is no other. And then in verse 8, Drip down, O heavens, from above, and let the clouds pour down righteousness. Let the earth open up, and salvation bear her fruits, and righteousness spring up with it. I, the Lord, have created it. We find here the Lord prophesying that He will rain down from heaven, righteousness, and salvation. Now go to Isaiah 49. Which, it is understood that here between about Isaiah 44, 45, through 55, is there's Exodus language or motif throughout this section, and so we come to it in anticipation of seeing such. And this Exodus motif is one, again, of that worn path from the first Exodus in anticipation of a new Exodus. And in 49, verses 6, we read, He says, Is it too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel? I will also make you a light of the nations so that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and its Holy One, to the despised one, to the one abhorred by the nations, to the servant of rulers, kings will see and arise. Princes will also bow down because the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel who has chosen you. Here the Lord is providing a one. His provision of this one is a Redeemer. But his one who will be abhorred and despised. He comes first in humility. Now let's see the breaking forth of this one and turn with me to Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2 records for us, beginning in verse 21, the obedience of Mary and Joseph in bringing before their firstborn, in obedience to the consecration of the firstborn from when? Exodus chapter 12, or 11 and 12. And so we read the consecration of the firstborn there, instituted there in the first exodus, and now we have them in obedience here, bringing him to the temple, and we find a believing Jew who's about to receive and bless Jesus, one who is a student of the scriptures, of the Old Testament scriptures, and so he's brimming with anticipation, and so he utters these prophetic words. It says, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, 
looking for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. So in verse 29, Now, Lord, you are releasing your bondservant to depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the presence of all people, a light of revelation to the Gentiles, and the glory of your people Israel. And his father and mother were amazed at these things which were being said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rise of many in Israel and for a sign to be opposed. And a sword will pierce even your own soul to the end that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. So we see that Simeon got it. Simeon understood by here, by a word of the Lord, that the, that the Lord was fulfilling this type of manna. He was fulfilling this anticipation of a new exodus, the consolation of Israel. A light of revelation to the Gentiles and a glory and the glory of your people, Israel. So we see these tracks worn, manna and future generation. Now we've come to manna and Christ. And it should be our chief delight as we read the Old Testament scriptures to prayerfully search for that which foreshadows him of whom Moses and the prophets did write. And so in John 6, Christ proclaims himself to be the object lesson of Exodus 16 when he says that he is the true bread that has come down from heaven. Before we go to John 6, let's go to John 1. And we'll see that this true manna, like Exodus, was one not of natural generation. John 1, verse 1. We know it well. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. John making it clear that this Word was God. This Word was in the beginning with God. In other words, this Word has no beginning because God is beginningless. And so we see in verse 14 that this Word now and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, or tabernacled among us. And we saw what? His glory. Glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. This, world, this word becoming flesh, and we don't have time to fully give uh, an explanation to this becoming that posits no change in the word but change in the status of humanity for before humanity was not joined to divinity, but in Christ, divinity and humanity are mysteriously joined. We see marvelous, mar marvelously interpretive to the manna in the wilderness, and not until the Son of God became incarnate was the glory of the Lord fully revealed. 
But when the eternal word became flesh and tabernacled among men, then as the beloved apostles declared, we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father. Thomas Watson says in his body of divinity, he was poor that he might make us rich. He was born of a virgin that we might be born of God. He took our flesh that he might give us his spirit. He lay in the manger that we might lie in paradise. He came down from heaven that he might bring us to heaven. Oh, the wonders of the coming of this true manna. Consider now John 6. And though we are reading our Bibles from left to right, you can see that it's influenced right to left also. So in John 6, it begins with Christ feeding this crowd that follows him up a hill. They follow him up a mountain, and he dispenses to them wisdom and truth. But he also feeds them. He also feeds them. It says that, and after these things, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, and a large crowd followed him because they saw the signs which he was performing on those who were sick. Our first tip here is that this crowd is following him for what they can see with their eyes. And after his teaching, they get close. And they proclaim in verse 14 that this is truly the prophet who has come into the world. When they saw this sign, they said, truly this is the prophet who has come into this world. And then we read in verses 26 and 27, when they find him again, and they are following after him, Jesus discerning their hearts, he answers them in verse 26, Truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate the loaves and were filled. Do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you, for on him the Father God has set his seal. And then in verse 28, they said, What shall we do so that we may work the works of God? You see their focus. What's Christ's answer in verse 29? This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. Again, in verse 31, it's, they now demand a sign. Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness as it was written. He gave them bread out of heaven to eat. Are they seeking the, the bread that comes down from heaven? No, they're seeking bread. And Jesus says to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread out of heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread out of heaven. For the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. Then they said, Lord, always give us this bread. In other words, let us be like the Israelites in physicality to go and gather it always. 
And then he answers them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will no longer hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. Further, he says, For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. And they responded with, Praise the Lord, hallelujah. No. They responded like their forefathers. They grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down out of heaven. And they said, isn't this Jesus, who we know, his father and mother? Jesus sets them straight in verse 45. He says, it is written in the prophets, and they shall be taught of God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Christ setting them straight from verse 14 where they said, Surely a prophet has come to us. And he says, No, a prophet speaks for God. I speak as God. He was trying to show them as he says in verse 47, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread which comes down out of heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. And if anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. And the bread also which I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. And because they were only hearing with ears of flesh and seeing with eyes of flesh, they stumble that they are to eat his flesh. And yet, he says to them that this is a difficult statement. And he says it is the Spirit who gives life in verse 63. The press, the flesh profits nothing. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of, some of you who do not believe. Oh, that we would partake of this true manna through faith in the true manna that has come down to us from heaven. So we may see now rightly and betterly the manna and us. That which follows here in Exodus 16 is deeply important. Every detail in it speaks loudly to us. If only we have ears to hear. The manna which is provided for Israel is a beautiful type of the food which God has provided for our souls. This food is the eternal word who through the spirit inspired the written word. This food is both his written word and his incarnate word. We come to it as often as they gathered the manna. We shall often come to God's word in the same way, in anticipation to be fed. Those with little had no lack, and those with much, those needed much, had as enough, enough as they needed. The main idea 
is that the Israelites were living by sight and not by faith. So we are continually brought to realize that we are not to rely upon ourselves, but upon the Lord alone for all things in life. As the Lord at another place said that all these things shall be added unto you. So we come this morning to the story of the Israelites in the wilderness and the provision of the Lord with manna, but we have not come to a manna of sense. We've come to the true manna. We've come to Christ. And so let us attend to this bread and be satisfied completely, doing away with the whispers of spiritual hunger and replacing it with life abundant. It was the Lord that, was, that teaches that He is not only our liberator, but also our daily provider. He gives to us all that is needed for daily bread. That's how the Lord taught us to pray. Give us this day our daily bread. And surely He will never leave us or forsake us. Provision in part now that will be received in its fullest when we reach that heavenly Canaan. Let's go to Him in prayer. Oh Lord, we give you praise this morning. For you are the true manna who has come from heaven. You fill our souls abundantly. Oh, that we would see what we have in Christ and partake. Partake by faith. That we, like Christ will not enter into glory except through suffering. We ask that you would sustain us by this bread, that we may reach that heavenly shore. We give you praise, and we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.